Okay, if you would please turn, if you haven't done so in your Bibles, to 1 Chronicles chapter 17. If you need a Bible, we're going uh, to go right through this chapter today. So if you need a Bible, there's some right outside the door. I think Adam is coming in now with them. But we have uh, been moving through First uh, Chronicles, this book, and uh, pretty much taking a chapter a day. And so here we come now to chapter 17, and uh, it begins with these first two verses. It says, Now when David lived in his house, David said to Nathan the prophet, Behold, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of the covenant of the Lord is under a tent. And Nathan said to David, Do all that is in your heart, for God is with you. So today we're going to look at this full chapter, which begins with David announcing that he's interested in building a temple, a place for the Ark of the Covenant. It's, it's in a temporary dwelling, it's in a tent, but it's been in a tent for the last five, six hundred years. And David is sitting in his palace and he's sort of like, you know, this isn't right. Now we looked at chapter 15 and chapter 16 and we saw that in those chapters the Ark was successfully transported, if you will, to uh, Jerusalem. And then chapter 16 in particular, they spent this time uh, as dedicating this new place, this new tent. They, they spent this time worshiping. But what we don't know is the length of time that took place between chapter 16 and chapter 17. You, you read it and you think later that night David went home and he said, you know, we should build a building for this. But that's not the case. We realize that there was a, an extensive period of time that had transpired between chapter 16 and chapter 17. Part of the reason why we know that is because in the parallel passage with 1 Chronicles 17, in 2 Samuel 7, we read there these words. It says, Now when the king lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all of his surrounding enemies, the king said, I dwell in a house of cedar, you know, and, and the ark is in a tent. So the added words there are this idea that when the king had given him rest from his surrounding enemies. So David is here now in a period, there's no more battles for a while. And David is now in a period where he's able to just sort of sit back and relax or rest, have a leisure time, so to speak. And if we compare this to our relationship with Christ, if we're a follower of Christ, if you're a follower of Christ, and some of you aren't, and that's okay, you will be maybe, as the Lord directs in your life, and you're just trying to figure things out, and that's cool. Um, but all of us are in that journey. And so if you are a follower of Christ, then you've experienced that in the Christian walk, there are times when you're in a battle, and there are times when you're during a period of rest, you know, and you're struggling and you're wondering, am I going to get through this? Can I ever get through this? Do I want to get through this? Or do I want to just forsake my faith? That's the battle time. And then there are other times you come out of that and you're like, ah, God, you're just so good. I can just rest in you. I can just relax here in this particular place. And David is in that place, a place where he's able to kind of stop from the madness of life and just sort of sit and take in all that has transpired and all that's going on. Now remember, at this instance where he's in this place of rest, he's firmly established as the king. He's the king, certainly as I said. The nation's at peace. And he can look at that and he said, the people of Israel are safe. They're finally safe. In addition to that, he looks around and he's living in this great palace. Remember, David used to live in caves and things like that as he was running as an enemy of the state, and now he's living in this great palace. So in addition to the people being safe, he can say, I am safe. And remember, David's palace is just down this little hill from over here where the temple would eventually be built. This is called the city of David. This is what is today the, the Temple Mount. Just a little bit higher up, no more than maybe 100 feet away or so. And I suspect David, maybe he comes out on his patio, his veranda, and he looks up the hill, 
and he sees the canopy tent sitting there. And he looks and he says, and the Ark of the Covenant is established. And look at the people coming in and leaving. And they're going and they're worshiping. And so David is just sort of taking it all in. And he's reminding himself of how good God has been and how he has greatly blessed David. And I I wonder, and sometimes I let my mind kind of imagine things a little bit, but I, I imagine that David is sitting there. We know that he's sitting there with a fellow by the name of Nathan, who is a prophet. And I imagine the two of them are sort of sitting there. And David, and, and whenever men get together, inevitably a competition is going to take place. We have to compete because that gives us uh, some sense of purpose in life. I don't know what it is. But I imagine that these two men sort of get into a little competition with one another. And the competition is to see who can remember more of the deeds, the good deeds that God has done in the life of David. And remember, David instructed the priest to invoke the Lord, and we said that invoke the Lord means to remind oneself of the deeds that God has done in your life. And so I suspect that these guys are sitting there, and they're trying to top one another. And David begins, and he says, you know, when I was a kid, I used to watch the sheep out in the field. And I remember one time watching those sheep that a lion came, and he was threatening my dad's sheep. And I was scared out of my mind, but I prayed this prayer. I said, God, just strengthen me. Give me the ability. Help me. And God did. And I took that lion by the, what's this called? The mane. I took that lion. You guys are good. I took that lion and I, I told him, you better go home. And he went home. And man, God was so good. And then I suspect Nathan responded, yeah, yeah, that's pretty cool. He says, but how about that time that you were an errand boy? And your dad sent you to go bring lunches to your brothers. And by the end of that day, the people of Israel were singing your praises because you slew the giant. Top that one, Nathan says to him. And David goes back and forth. And they go back and forth trying to top one another with how good God has been in David's life. And then I suspect that, have you ever talked to someone and you're talking to them or whatever, and then suddenly they're like looking away and you're like, you're not with me anymore, are you? Because in their mind's eye, they've drifted somewhere else. They're thinking about something else. They're not with you. And I suspect during this conversation that David's mind's eye, in his mind's eye, it's kind of went somewhere else. And Nathan, blah, 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 you know, you're not here, are you? And so he waits patiently, and finally David kind of shakes back to reality, and Nathan says to him something like, well, where'd you go? And David's response is this. Look at verse 1. David says, behold, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of the covenant of the Lord is under a tent. And Nathan's response, it's found in uh, verse 2, but essentially, Nathan says to him, don't say another word. I know exactly what you're thinking. Remember a few weeks back, I said, are you thinking what I'm thinking? You know, that's what Nathan says. I know exactly what you're thinking. Great idea. Go for it. Now, the idea is that David is going to build a temple. So here's the first point that I would like to make about a period of rest that we find ourselves. So here we are. I'm not talking about going up and down like, today I love Jesus, tomorrow I can't stand them. I'm not talking about that. I'm just talking about sort of the ups and downs of, man, everything is great and easy and comfortable and this is fun and this is challenging. I don't know if I'm going to make it. So we're kind of going through these things here like this. And when we are at this place of rest, this place where potentially we can just sit and relax and take things in, I'd like to take a moment and look at David's frame of mind during that time of leisure. Now it's been said, and you probably know from your study of history, that again and again in history, that a king's period of leisure is the time where they often get themselves into the most trouble. Not just a king, but a nation. 
And when a nation is, everything is kind of floating through and everything is going wonderful, they tend to kind of drift and get themselves into trouble, as we've seen again and again in history. Well, we need to realize that again and again in our lives as well, when we find ourselves in a place of rest, that the immediate battles have ceased and we've entered into a period of leisure, that that's the time when perhaps we need to be most careful. And if we're not on our guard during those times, that time of rest can become a very dangerous time where we can get tripped up, but not David. David here, the example that he sets for us is that he has consecrated this time of rest. He has determined that good is going to come from this time of rest. You know, sometimes when, when my family and I, we take maybe our week vacation or something like that, uh, and we'll go to the beach or something, the schedule of everything sort of changes. And so normally what happens is I, you know, I set my alarm early because I want to get up before all the craziness of our family um, establishes itself during the week. And all the kids are up and people have to get breakfast and they have to go off to school and all that. So I set my alarm so I can beat all of that. But then vacation comes and you sort of sleep in a little bit and maybe you don't have as much time to read the word or whatever. And I, just a few years back I determined I want to leave this vacation better spiritually than when I came to this vacation. And so I'm going to continue to set my alarm and I'm going to continue to seek the Lord as I would normally so that when I leave this place after this period of leisure, that the time of rest has been consecrated to the Lord. And that's what David here has done. He's consecrated his time of rest to the Lord. So instead of being preoccupied with self and those things that are going to benefit him or make him happy or bring pleasure to himself, David instead concerns himself with the things of God. I like what Arthur Pink said in his book, The Life of David. He said, there are a few things which afford a surer index to our spirituality or lack of our spirituality than how we are engaged in our times of leisure. When the conflict is over and the sword is laid down, we're very apt to relax and become careless about spiritual concerns. And then it is, while off our guard, that Satan so often succeeds in gaining an advantage over us. Now, David, though, is not going to let that happen during this period of leisure. We'll see another example in a few chapters, a few weeks from now, where he is in a period of leisure and he is tripped up by Satan. We'll talk about that then. But in this case here, David has consecrated this time of leisure to the Lord. Compare these words, if you will, because both circumstances are virtually the exact same. The king wanders out to his veranda and looks over his kingdom, so to speak. And David, again, in verse 1 says, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of the Lord is under a tent. The words that aren't there basically implies there's something not right about this. God should be in the house of cedar. I should be the one in a tent. Uh, so that's David's words. Compare that with Nebuchadnezzar in the book of Daniel. In Daniel chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar, he comes to his veranda, looks out over his kingdom of Babylon, and he says, Is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of of my majesty. Do you see the, the difference in their frame of mind there? You know, you hear those words from Nebuchadnezzar and you're almost like you want to slide away from him because you know the lightning bolts are going to be coming down. You're like, dude, you better be careful. And if you read Daniel chapter 4 and 5, you, you see that Nebuchadnezzar goes through a, a period of forced humbling. But David humbled himself. It's much better when we humble ourselves than when we have to be humbled. Amen? Do you agree with that? Oh, I got all Pentecostal on you. Amen? Yeah? All right? And so... It's much better when we, hu we can humble ourselves. And David's frame of mind is to do just that. 
So his ease and comfort drives him to a place of humility. Now, the second point that I want to make about this period of leisure and rest is this, is who's David with? Who's he spending his time with? Now, there are times when you can't determine who you're going to spend your time with. You know, you've got to go off to work, and you've got to work with the people that you have to work with, and so on. You know, maybe you go to your extended family for holidays or whatever, and these are your cousins, so you've got to sit with them and, and share that meal with them. I love my family, by the way. That's my, my sister-in-law is here. Um, a great family. And so, but, you know, you can't necessarily pick and choose in some circumstances. But in those circumstances that you can choose who you're going to spend your time with and, and how you're going to spend your time with, how do you determine who those people are going to be? It's been said that a godly friend and companion during our period of rest is invaluable to both foster and preserve your current spirituality. Again, I like what Arthur Pink says. Hours of recreation, recreation would prove hours of recreation indeed if they were spent in godly conversation. I'll use that word. He used a different word when he wrote. With someone who lives near unto the Lord. We're influenced by the companionship that we enjoy. You hang around with a complainer long enough, what happens to you? Suddenly you find yourself becoming more of a complainer than you were before. You hang around with a person that's sarcastic, and suddenly you find you're quick and witty with your little comments, but you also become a jerk, all right? Because you hang in that little environment there. But if you hang around with a person that oozes Jesus, that's one of the reasons I love going on mission trips and, and just those environments where I get to spend extended period of times with people you know you hang we're doing this 20 somethings mission trip and i'm looking forward i'm hoping to go on it um but i look forward to it because these young people they just love the lord and you get to sit with them for an extended period of time you get to live dorm life so to speak uh with them and these people just ooze jesus and suddenly what you find is that your spirit is increasingly aware of the presence of the lord as well in your life and you know that he's there and he's here and you become a little bit more like him so sometimes there's nothing you can do about the people you have to hang around with. But at those times when you can control, my suggestion is to pick folks that you're going to hang around with that will build you up spiritually. People that are going to foster and preserve your spirituality. In Proverbs, as you know, many of you know this verse, it says, As iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpeneth another. It also says in the book of Hebrews, Let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love, and good deeds. Let's not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but let's encourage one another, especially as we see the day, that's the return of the Lord Jesus, as we see the day approaching. So these two points here. One, frame of mind, David has. And two, who is his companion during that period of free time, that leisure time? Well, that's just the first two verses, and there's about 27 here, so let's move on. Let's see what happens as we continue to read. So remember, the circumstances, David said, I know what we should do. Nathan says, I know what you're thinking, do it. And Nathan goes home, David goes home. I suspect David goes into his office, picks up the phone uh, back in 3,000 years ago, and he just starts calling people. Look, this is what we're going to do. It's going to be great. Do you think you want to be in on this job? You'd be a great you know, foreman of the job. And you, know, you have connections. Can you make some calls? I'm going to need some of this. I'm going to need some wood. I'm going to need some blocks. Can you get on? And David is putting everything in motion, excited, drawing up on a napkin, I'm sure, what it's going to look like, and he is ready to go. And Nathan goes home, on his way home, and here's what it says as it continues. It says, But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan, saying, Go, tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, It is not you 
who will build me a house to dwell in. For I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up Israel to this day. But I have gone from tent to tent and from dwelling to dwelling. In all places where I have moved with uh, all Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now here's, an, here's a valuable point here. Dave, or, excuse me, Nathan is a godly man. But even as a godly man, he was fallible. And he could make mistakes. He heard the plan, and it sounded so right. Yet, it was not God's plan. And acting presumptuously, he tells David to go ahead and move forward. Now, he's got to have that awkward conversation with David. My kids watch the Disney Channel, as some of your kids maybe do or don't. I don't know. You watch what you want to watch. But uh, our kids watch the Disney Channel, and it seems like every one of those shows has that uh, that same phrase that you hear over and over again where two people are squabbling and the one kid will turn to the other and will say, awkward, you know, this sort of thing. My kids say that whenever my wife is, has a bad attitude um, or something like that. I'm just teasing. Or whenever we're having a conversation, um, they will say, awkward. And we're trying to tell them, look, we're not screaming at each other. We're, having, we're disagreeing on this thing here. This is how people talk things out. And they're like, no, it's awkward, it's tension, you know, or whatever. And so inevitably, Jake or Luke or Hope will say, awkward, or whatever. And I suspect that's the only word that describes the circumstance here. Nathan having to turn around, obey the Lord, go back to the king's palace, knock on the door, and David said, hold on, I'm just on the phone here. And he's making all these plans, and then he has to say to him, it's not going to happen, buddy, I'm sorry. That's a strange conversation to have. Now, the plan to build a temple, totally in the will of God. Deuteronomy chapter 12, I'll just read a portion of it. You can see it on the screen there. It says, when you go over to the Jordan and you live in that land the Lord your God is giving you, and then he gives you rest from all your enemies so that you live there safely or in safety, then to the place that the Lord your God will choose to make his name to dwell, there you shall bring all the sacrifices. So when they came to a period of rest, they would build a temple, a place where the sacrifices would be brought. David is now in a period of rest. Duh, let's build a temple. That's not the way that God necessarily uh, drew it up, though. The only thing wrong with the plan that, that Nathan and David came up with is that God had not appointed David to do that. So, he says in verse 4, it's not you who will build me a house to dwell in, he says to David. David has a great desire to serve the Lord, but the Lord told him no. But God, why would you tell me no? And I'm reminded in the New Testament where Jesus crosses over the Galilee and he comes to the man that is demon-possessed. The man had been exiled from his local community that he lived in. They chained him up, but he would have this supernatural power that would come and he would break the chains. And essentially, the man found a home amongst the tombs, it says. Now, the tombs in those days were like caves. So he's living in these caves where there's bags of bones that are lying there next to him. And he has just been abandoned by his society. And Jesus crosses over the Galilee, encounters this man. He leads him to himself, I guess you might say. Uh, and he brings him to Christ. He, he speaks to him about the, the mercy of God and so on. And the man is cleansed and in his right mind, clothed again, all these sorts of things. And then the people come and they chase Jesus away. They're freaked out by Jesus. They chase him away. And the man looks at these people that had abandoned him and thrown him to the dead, essentially. And he says, can I come with you? please let me get with, come with you into that boat and go back to wherever it is you're going. I just want to go with you. And Jesus says to him, no. 
You can't come. He says, instead, go and tell all your family and friends in this community how good God has been to you. And so the man did. So the man had a good desire. What could be wrong with wanting to go with Jesus? But Jesus had said, great desire, but no. You can't come. And in this instance here, David has this great desire, but the Lord tells him no. Maybe you've been in that circumstance. I've talked to some folks that when they were younger, they were coming out of college or whatever, they were on fire for Christ, and they wanted to serve Him with their life. And so they determined, I'm going to be a missionary. i just got to do a couple of things. i got to pay off some student loans, whatever it may be, and this and that. And one thing led to another, and this great desire to be a missionary never came to fruition. And essentially that God had said no to them. Or they wanted to do everything in their power to go, but the doors just kept closing. God had said no. Talk to families and people here all the time, or individuals, I should say, that want to get married desperately. And the year becomes another year, which now I'm entering into this decade of my life and so on, and they just wonder, God, why? It's a good thing to want to be married. Scripture says he who finds a wife, or transferred to the husband, finds a good thing. And yet it seems that God has just said no. Or at the very least at this time, he said not yet. It's hard. There are folks in our church that have been desperately trying to get pregnant. Married couples, and they just can't. And God has not seen uh, to bless them with a pregnancy. And they're hurting. And they wonder, God, why? God, why? So sometimes God says no. Sometimes we hear not yet. That's hard, certainly. But at least when you hear not yet, there's a light at the end of the tunnel. You know that someday it'll come about. But at other times in our lives, we're told no. And it's hard to hear no, especially when we know that our intentions are good. You know, I'm not going to misuse this. It won't be wrong. You know, it's not sin or anything like that. And then we're told no. But I think what's even harder than that is when we hear no and we're not given an explanation. When I used to be a school teacher, I I was also the student government advisor and a class advisor and all these other jobs that I did um, in in the school. And occasionally, the students, myself, we would come up with an idea, some initiative. We want to do this at the school. We think it'll be great. And we've thought it through and we have all these great ideas. And so then we would go to the principal or whomever and we would present the idea to them, and they would kind of listen, they'd nod their head or whatever, and they said, uh, no, we're not going to do that. That's hard to hear. And for me, I, I, no problem. It's less work for me. I just represented the kids. I don't mind. I'll go home at the end of the day or whatever. But it was hard to hear that. And so inevitably I would follow up. I said, oh, I understand, but could you just explain to me why? Because if I can understand why, I'm good with that. You know, Because maybe you see things that I don't know. And, but... Then there are those times where, no, I have no answer. And so if I'm told no with no sort of an explanation, that's very challenging for me spiritually, especially when it comes, obviously, here from God. David is not told why. He's just said, basically, thank you, but no thank you. Later on, we discover that God tells David why. But in these circumstances, David is told, that'll be it, you may leave. And he leaves kind of the office of the presence of the principle or of God in this particular instance there. We learn from 1 Chronicles 22 that the reason why David isn't allowed to build this temple is because he had been a man of war and that there was blood upon his hands and and God essentially was saying, look, this is going to be a place of peace and I'm going to use a man of peace to build it. And so Solomon is granted that particular privilege here. And today, in addition to what we've already studied, I want to take a few moments to look at David's response. Okay? Uh, because I think it says volumes about his character. And I also think, I also think it, it models 
a great pattern for you and I when we have to hear the difficult word from God. No, you can't do that. But before we do that, let's read verse 7 here. It says, Now therefore thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture from following the sheep to be prince over my people Israel. I've been with you wherever you have gone. I've cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a name like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel. And I will plant them that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. Violent men shall waste them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will subdue all of your enemies. Moreover, I declare to you that the Lord will build you a house. When your days are fulfilled to walk with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, one of your own sons, and he will establish his own kingdom. He shall build... Ooh, sorry, puberty. He shall build a house for me, and I will establish his throne forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. I will not take my steadfast love from him, as I took it from him who came before you. Remember, that was King Saul. But I will confirm in him in I will confirm him in my house and in my kingdom forever, and his throne shall be established forever. And in accordance with all these words, Nathan told David. So David here says, I want to build a house for you. And if you just summarize all those words in those ten verses or so, God essentially says to him, I appreciate the gesture, but rather I'm going to build a house for you. Notice verse 10, Moreover, I declare to you that the Lord will build you a house. Anybody here see the movie Facing the Giants? All right, raise your hand so I have an idea of who I'm ruining the story for. Okay, very good. So those of you that haven't seen it, um, you missed your chance. It's been out for five years. Come on, get with it. All righty, so here's the story uh, of Facing the Giants. The story is of this small-time little Christian school football team. And they don't have enough kids, and they stink, you know, and they get beat all the time or whatever. And the coach is looked at by the community as basically it's all his fault, right? Where's coaches? If the team stinks, it's always the, kid, it's always the coach's fault. If the team is great, man, they got great kids at that, that community there or whatever, you know, whatever. So here is this particular coach. His team stinks. All right, his name is Coach Taylor. And yet, as the story goes on, it's a great story. Things are happening, and one thing leads to another, and the team suddenly is starting to have success. And even if they don't have success, just great things are happening. It's a great movie. At the same time as all of this has happened, Coach Taylor's football team is getting better. His home uh, and all the struggles that are going on there uh, is seemingly improving except for the one, that he and his wife are desperately trying to have a baby and it's just not happening. And so all of that emotion that is associated with that. Now, the, the best part of the movie, the part that comes to the end, uh, and it's a great movie to watch husbands and wives because the whole like husband-wife like, scenario, are we going to have a baby and all that, that makes women cry. And when they win the state championship, that makes men cry. You know, so there's all kinds of good things that are going on there. So in this particular story that is going on, they have, and I don't, again, I don't want to ruin it, but they win the state championship. This small little Christian school, I told you, at five years, you've got to get up with the move. Uh, this small little Christian school beats this perennial state power uh, in high school football in the state of Georgia there. And the coach is just amazed, and the kids are all excited, and he's so happy for them, and He's in the whole locker room scene, and, and, you know, they're just, this is great. And he says, let's pray, and let's give thanks to God just for the, his goodness in our lives. Not because we won, just because he's been good to us. And so uh, that's that part of it. Then he comes home, 
And he comes in with this big trophy and his wife with her corny little uh, Georgian accent. She says, is that the state championship coach, Grant Taylor? And he says, uh, yes, it is, you know, and, and all this sort of stuff. And, and he says to her, honey, he says, God has just been so incredible. He's just been so good. He showered his blessing. What a day this has been. And she responds. She said, well, the day's not over yet, she says. And he says, what, what do you mean? He says, well, I just want you to know, Grant Taylor, she says, you've made the team. And, and my family, we always laugh at that line because it's so corny. But she says, you made the team. And he looks at her and she says, you made the daddy team. And she's pregnant. And, and that's where I usually cry um, <laughs> at that particular scene there. But here's the, sto- here's the reason I bring it up. Because when she says that to him, he, he does a great job acting. And I, I have to wonder if he didn't go through these experiences in his life because it, it just comes out. He breaks down into tears, drops down upon his knees, and he says, God, he says, I'm, he holds his head, he said, I'm overwhelmed. He said, God, you've just been, it's a movie. And look at me, it's a movie. <laughs> he says, he said, you've just been too good to me. I can't take it anymore, stop. And that is what I thought of when I thought of David here. He had just been invoking the Lord. He'd been talking to David, playing top the blessing game with Nathan about all the good things that God had done in his life. And then he has this no. And then God says to him, you used to chase sheep around. And now you sit in a palace. The children of Israel used to run all around because their enemies came to kill them. And now they dwell securely. I took away the kingdom from Saul because he wasn't a man after my own heart. I will establish your kingdom, David, forever. And, and David is sitting there and he's taking all of this in. And David, I wouldn't be surprised if he didn't break down there and say like Grant Taylor, he says, I'm just overwhelmed. God, you have been so incredibly good. I love what it says in the New Testament in the Gospel of John. It says the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth come through Jesus Christ. And from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. I think there's an important principle here to speak of about our Savior, our Lord. Is he, you know, I think we can look at it and like, yeah, yeah, he poured out his grace on us. Just sort of enough grace so that we can go to heaven. You know, but that's not the way that God works at all. And this passage here, that example that I share from you from that particular movie, these things here, that is not an aberration of God's character, but that's who he is at all times. That's the way in which God works. He doesn't just give us a little bit of grace in our lives but he lavishes his grace upon us. Grace upon grace upon grace. It was this passage of Scripture in John chapter 1 that John Newton, the one who wrote uh, the, the famous hymn, Amazing Grace, it was this passage of Scripture that he was reading when God finally broke through in his heart. Now you may not know much about John Newton, but John Newton, prior to coming to a relationship with the Lord Jesus, John Newton was a slave trader. And he came to Jesus... And he could not get past the evils of his sin in his life. And he knew that he was forgiven. And he knew that he would get to go to heaven. But he also knew that he had been a wicked, wicked man that had done horrible things to so many people. Snatching people from their families. Sending them away in tears. Many of them not even making it to the new land because of the horrors of the Middle Passage. And he was the one that was responsible those things he just could not forgive himself even though he knew that God had graciously forgiven him and then he came upon those words those last few words of verse 16 
that speak of grace upon grace. And it all just flooded over him. And he realized that he was a new creation in Christ. And that God had cleansed him and forgiven him from those evils of his past. And you know, folks, that same truth in each one of our lives as well. I'm sure that there are some of us that come here and there are things in our past that we cannot forgive ourselves of. And we certainly can't share that with other people. Because if they knew, if they knew, they would think completely differently of me. And the truth is, from the Scripture, is that God lavishes His grace upon us. He pours it out. And I'd encourage you, if you haven't already done so, even if you're a Christian, you've made a decision to follow Christ and to trust in His work on the cross, even if you've already done that, you may still be struggling with wondering if God will pour out even more grace upon you or just enough to get you into heaven. The reality of the Scripture is He will. A good point I think here also to make is that this amazing overflowing of grace that David is experiencing, it comes during the time where God had told him no. You know, what good can come from being told no to something? Well, here we see this, and I love these words from Alan Redpath. He says, that sometimes God has more to teach us from His denials than from His permissions. God has a reason for every denial. In some cases, a little bit down the road, we'll discover what it was and we'll say, oh God, thank you. You've been so good. But in other cases, we'll never know until we get to heaven. But I have no doubt, we get on that other side of those gates that apparently Peter is standing at, that people tell you he's there, at those pearly gates or whatever, and we get on the other side of those I think instantly we'll look back and we'll know. God, I understand what you were doing and why you were doing it. God, you're amazing. I can trust you. So when we're told no, no, we're simply asked to trust. And the most important thing is when we are told no is how we react. So how do you react when God has said no in your life to something? Do you pout about it? Do you storm away angry? Well, if that's the way it's going to be, then I'm done with you. That sort of a thing. Do you spend the rest of your days complaining and grumbling about all the things that God won't let you do? These sorts of things. Well, none of those were the responses of David. And those sorts of responses, I would suggest to you, are a big mistake. David models for us the proper, the proper response when God says no to us. Look at verse 16. It says, Then King David went and he sat before the Lord and he said, Who am I, O Lord God? Now, when it says that he sat before the Lord, this is the only time in Scripture where a person that is praying is said to be seated. A lot of times we think we have to fall on our knees or something like that. Many times you see in the Scripture when men and women of God pray that they actually stand and they lift their hands. They look up to the heavens and stuff like that. But we have no instances in Scripture where people go and pray and they sit down. But here we have David going in and it says, sitting before the Lord and he begins to pray. I, I'm, I don't know if it really matters, but I, I don't think he's nece- it's necessarily speaking of that he's sitting down on a chair somewhere, but I think the way that it's described here has more to do with his continuance. He goes in, he stops everything, and he waits there. And he's not going to leave until this kind of circumstance is sort of worked out. And again, using a little bit of heavenly imagination, I suspect David is a lot bummed out. Not just a little, but a lot. And he's depressed. And he's upset. And he walks out of his little palace there, his big palace there, and he makes his way the hundred or so feet up and he sits down before the Ark of the Covenant where that little tent was covering it there. 
And there as he sits, instead of stomping away in anger, he just sits and he waits for God. And I also suspect that in the honesty of his heart, very humbly, he just begins to ask or state maybe, God, I don't understand. I don't like this. Or maybe he says something like, God, why would you do that? Just simple, honest, humble prayers that come from the deep places of his heart. And it's in that humility that as we see in our passage that God begins to minister to David. And so the first point that I would make is when God says no about something in our lives, the first thing that we want to do is slow down everything, come to a stop, so that God can have a moment or so to speak into our lives. And as He does, and He will, that's when He will reveal to you or He will reassure you, to use John Newton's word, of His amazing grace. The second point that I make about this is, as you continue to read there, first he went and he sat before the Lord, and then when he spoke, is that David put things into perspective. David says in verse 16, Who am I, O Lord God? And what is my house that you have brought me this far? And if that was a small thing in your eyes, O God, you have also spoken of your servant's house for a great while to come. And you have shown me future generations, O Lord. And what more can David say to you for honoring your servant? What, what more can I say for how good you've been to me? I've said thank you. I have no other words to share. And he says, for you know your servant. So essentially, David is saying this. He says, God, I'm a nobody, and yet you have been amazingly good to me. And not just once, but again and again and again. And you know what, Lord? It's hard for me to hear, but you said no in this instance, but you have said yes in my life again and again and again. And you will say yes again and again and again. David puts things in perspective. And then finally, when God said no to David, he didn't complain about it. Instead, he determined, all right, there's, there's something I can't do. But he determined, there may be something I can't do, but what is it that I can go and do from this circumstance? And as you're going to see as we continue to study through the book of First Chronicles, what David does is, rather than sulking and saying, well, if that's the way it's going to be fine, I ain't doing nothing for nobody ever again. You know, this sort of an attitude. Rather than that being the case, rather what David will do, we'll look at it in chapter 22. Instead, he says, I'm going to make preparations. If I can't be the one to build it, then I'm going to do everything in my power to make it easier for those who can. So you can look at verses uh, 2 through 5 of chapter 22. But David essentially there, as you're looking up at the screen if you want to, David said, look, I'm going to need bronze, I'm going to need stones, I'm going to need woodworkers, I'm going to need this, I'm going to need that. And he begins to gather all these things up to get it ready. And I think there's a valuable, valuable lesson for us when we've been told no. I wanted to be a missionary. I was all ready to go. And circumstances of life, somebody got sick in my family, I I certainly couldn't leave them, and I had to be there, and now the time had passed, and I'm not going to be a missionary. God has told you no. And when God has said no to you, I'll use Kevin Barber's words. Many of you know that Kevin uh, likes to make up words as he goes or whatever. And Kevin says uh, this. He says, you know what? Maybe you can't be a goer. That's the word he made up. You can't be a goer, but you can be a sender. And you can be a prayer uh, he would say. You know, so maybe you have a heart for missions and you wanted to get out on that field, but circumstances will not let you get out there. Well, then you can determine, I'm going to send other people that they can go. Because it's the message, not the messenger, that is important. You know, maybe God has determined that children aren't in your future. You know what? That doesn't mean that you can't invest into the lives of other children and come alongside of their parents 
who are trying to influence them and cause them uh, to grow in their own knowledge and understanding and love for the Lord Jesus. Perhaps the Lord would have you assist them because, you know, you might have a little more time on your hands, whatever it may be, not chasing little ones around. You can pour into the lives of other people. You know, maybe you have a desire to pastor your own church someday. And, and I remember for the longest time just sort of wondering, really not even allowing my mind to go there, but yet in the back of my mind just wondering, Lord, are, are you ever going to have a place where I can preach? Are you ever going to have a place where I can uh, shepherd a congregation? And maybe you, maybe some of you wonder that as well. Or if that ministry is ever going to open up for you. And the answer is, come back and, and circumstances of life have said no. You're not going to do that. But what you can do is pour your life out in support of another man's calling and assist them in fulfilling their ministry as a pastor. You can do that. And that's what David does. So instead of grumbling and complaining about what he can't do, he focuses instead on what he can. Just like John Corson said, it's the man after God's own heart who does what he can rather than complain about what he can't. David wanted to do something for God. And God responded, no, no, I want to do something for you. You know, sometimes we're so overwhelmed with how good God has been in our lives, we want to do something for Him. I want to go out and I want to serve. I want to go out and I want to do this. I want to give money to this cause or whatever. And we want to, I just want to do something to give back or whatever. And then circumstances, we can't do it. And then, but I wanted to bless God. And God says, I'm already blessed. I'm God. I'm okay. He says, I want to bless you, He says. And that, that's sort of the way it is. Our relationship with God is always about what He does for us and never really resting foundation-wise upon what we do for Him. That's sort of the foundation of it. And that is grace. It's all about grace as we read through the Scriptures. God just wants to pour it out in our lives. So whether we ever get to accomplish that vision that we had or those dreams that we have, our relationship will always remain the same, securely built upon the foundation of God's grace in our lives. I want to ask you, and I know some of you in here well, I know others a little bit or whatever, but I want to pose this question. Have you come to the place where you have just said, you know what, Lord, I'm ceasing from my labors. I sort of, you know, I took, I, I don't know, uh, I remember I did this in my life, actually. Um, I took a New Year's resolution. You know, I was going to be a better person. That's pretty vague, huh? You know, I took a New Year's resolution. I was going to be a better person. And I was also committed I was going to be at church every Sunday. That's why I was like seven, 16, 17 years old. I was going to be at church every Sunday there. And, and there was sort of this motivation in my, I'm going to be good. And, and I know we all kind of have those. We're, we're going to deter. I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. And then inevitably something happens and it falls through and it fails. And we think, well, I guess it's over with. A relationship with God does not depend upon your ability to do. But it depends upon what he has done for us. It's, that's the word again, I'll say it again, that's the word grace. And I want to ask this question here, have you definitely received the finished work grace of God upon the cross? Have you ceased from your efforts to please God with good deeds? Have you ceased from your effort to please God with good intentions and instead said, you know what, Lord, what pleases you is that I receive the free gift of salvation that you have given me. That's where blessing is found. Notice what it says, the last couple of verses, or verse I should say. It says, Now you have been pleased to bless the house of your servant, that it may continue forever before you. For it is you, O Lord, who have blessed, and it is blessed 
forever. You know, one of the children, one of the descendants of King David was a little boy that was born in a small little town called Bethlehem, a little boy named Jesus. And this is ultimately, this is what is called the Davidic Covenant. David, I see, Davidic Covenant. And the Davidic Covenant finds its fulfillment that a king would sit upon a throne forever in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And as it says in the New Testament, there is coming a day when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, is King, to the glory of our God and Father. We are blessed through the person of Jesus. I'd encourage you, if you have not done so, today's your day to receive the grace of God in the person of Christ. Let's pray. Father, but I know that uh, sort of that, that stepping over can be very, very challenging. Wondering, you know, if I step off of this cliff, will there be a net there? Will there be solid ground to stand on? Will God really receive me? Will He really wash me and cleanse me of those things that I'm ashamed to let anyone else know about? Will God really welcome me in? And Father, uh, I know many in this room now are even praying because we've experienced it. We know it. We were able to drink in Your grace in our lives and be overwhelmed by Your goodness. And Father, we want to pray for those with us today that need to receive that. Lord, open up their hearts. Just give them, Lord, just a seed of faith to be able to trust that You will welcome them in cleanse them, wash them, give them a hug, so to speak, and call them your child. And Father, I want to pray for those with us this morning that are a John Newton. They know that they get to go to heaven because they've accepted Jesus. But yet, Lord, they just consider themselves so stained. And Lord, they need today to receive grace upon grace. Father, break their hearts this morning like you did Newton's. Pour out your Spirit today. Do a work within each one of our hearts. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Why don't we stand?